0: Welcome to Head and Neck Cancer Update. This is medical oncologist, Dr. Neil Love. Since the landmark New England Journal 2006 publication by Bonner et al. demonstrating an advantage to the addition of cetuximab to radiation therapy for patients with locally advanced head and neck cancer, there's been considerable interest in evaluating the impact of the addition of this anti-EGFR antibody to chemoradiation therapy And at the 2008 ASCA meeting, Dr. Corey Langer presented an ECOG study looking at just this issue. I met with Dr. Langer, who's worked with our CME group for many years in our lung cancer programs, and this time we asked him about head and neck cancer. To begin our conversation, he discussed the background of the ECOG study.
1: This was a study that we conceived of about six or seven years ago. It's ECOG 3303. Head and neck, everyone's well aware, has got a very different clinical behavior from the more typical epithelial malignancies. There's a tremendous propensity for local recurrence, for local regional spread, and probably more than half the patients who develop head and neck cancer die of uncontrolled local regional disease. And a significant proportion of present have unresectable disease. These are folks with stage 4. Any other staging system, when we look at breast or lung, stage 4 means metastatic. Well, unfortunately, head and neck there's tremendous heterogeneity when it comes to staging. And so we've started breaking down stage 4 into 4A, 4B, 4C. It's only the 4C folks that are truly metastatic. So it was our goal to look at standard chemo radiation with platinum And to graft a cetuximab onto that regimen, over the last 10 to 15 years, chemoradiation has really become the standard approach for locally advanced head and neck cancer. Now, there's a big debate between induction and concurrent, and there's some data from ASCO that can help settle that as well. But when we look at meta-analyses, the best survival advantages come with concurrent chemoradiation. The big problem, of course, is the high dose of platinum that we typically use. 100 per meter squared every three weeks is not well tolerated. And then, of course, in the last two to three years, Jim Bonner's data was published in the New England Journal in 2006 that showed a survival advantage for cetuximab in combination with radiation versus radiation alone. It's really a landmark study. It's the first targeted agent I'm aware of that's been approved in the setting of definitive radiation. So there's been a tremendous appetite to try to wed these two approaches to give both chemo radiation and cetuximab radiation and this was our attempt. There was one fledgling single institution phase 2 pilot in the past, Dave Fister at Memorial had really attempted to do this but he may have jumped the gun a bit. He used higher dose platinum, used 100 per meter squared. And he used concomitant boost radiation. So it was a very aggressive chemo radiation regimen, and he grafted cetuximab onto that. And I actually talked a little bit about that at the presentation. There were about 21 patients he accrued to that trial, and there was a lot of toxicity. There were two deaths during treatment, there were three additional non fatal but highly significant adverse events that seemed to occur very quickly in sequence during the course of that trial, and so they were forced to shut it down. But ultimately, when they looked at their three-year data, it was quite promising. These are folks with essentially locally advanced, for the most part, unresectable disease, and they had a 76% three-year overall survival. So essentially, if they could survive the short-term toxicity, they seemed to do well. And were most of those patients free of disease? The progression-free survival at three years, the majority were still free. Yeah, it was about 56%. So what ECOG did, what we did in ECOG, we had already seen those data, so we knew we had to backtrack a bit, that we couldn't be quite so aggressive, particularly in a cooperative group that included multiple institutions, both academia and the community. So we dialed back on the platinum. We gave 75 per meter squared rather than 100 per meter squared every three weeks, and we gave single daily radiation. We didn't give a concomitant boost at the end. And the trial accrued apace. It was unresectable squamous cell. And I'm not going to go over the details, but David Adelstein, a number of years ago, had actually defined the unresectable group, looking at each particular sub-site in the head and neck, whether it was hypopharynx, larynx, oral cavity, base of tongue, the tonsil, or if folks had fixed lymph nodes in the neck that could not be separated from the carotid. And he had previously conducted a landmark Phase three trial where they compared radiation to full-dose radiation and platinum, and then a split course radiation 5FU platinum approach. And it was the full dose radiation single agent platinum that had the best outcome. So it was our intention to graph C225 onto the chemo radiation schedule based in part on his prior data. Our primary endpoint was progression free survival. We were looking for a 50% freedom from progression at two years and, and fairly quick order. About 18 months, we accrued 69 patients. There were 60 that were clearly evaluable. You've got to realize in head neck cancer, particularly when we're doing very aggressive, combined targeted therapy, chemo radiation, the populations are a little bit younger. And so our median age was about 55. But other than that, it was very typical. And in fact, it matched Dave Adelstein's demographics. 85% were male, The majority were at least PS1. 75% were former or current smokers. We did have a cohort that were never smokers. And 98% had stage 4 disease based on TNM status. 90% were N2 or N3, and 70% were at least T3 or T4. The most common sites included the base of tongue, the tonsil, and the oropharynx. And what we were pleased by was that for the most part, we were able to get all the treatment in. 75% of patients got all three doses of platinum, relatively few required dose reductions. The vast majority of patients were able to get all of the cetuximab in, and we included a proviso to go on to maintenance cetuximab, just as a pilot to see if it was feasible, and 72% actually initiated maintenance. And how long did
0: that go on for? It
1: went up to six months, and a third were able to complete all six months, and about 12 or 13% were able to receive a year of maintenance. The study said that at six months, you had the option of either continuing or not. But So at least folks could start it. A lot of folks dropped out Not so much for toxicity, but because, you know, this is weekly treatment and they do want to get on with their lives. So that's probably the major issue when it comes to maintenance. There was also a fair amount of cumulative cutaneous toxicity. The median radiation dose was exactly as we had planned. It was 70 grade. Toxicity was reasonable. There were only two grade five events out of 60 patients. So proportionally, we did a bit better than the memorial experience, at least in terms of grade five toxicities. Probably the biggest side effects, we did see a fair amount of mucositis and dysphagia and, of course, the acneiform rash. 26% of patients had grade 3 or 4 rash. Response rates don't sound that impressive, but we are living in the era of resist. So I think resist tends to downplay the response status. But overall, the response rate was 57%. Our progression-free survival was 15 months, but that's a very fluid endpoint. We still have a, you know, it's really an actuarial but our median survival is 33 months, and we now have a two year projected survival, and that's 67%. And that's pretty good. When you go back to Dave Edelstein's original paper, which was published in JCO about five years ago again, the one I mentioned where he compared radiation to chemo radiation his two year survival is 41%. Now, granted, this is an historic comparison. You could argue it's two different eras but it's essentially the same population. I went back to his original paper, and I compared stage, gender, site, and the populations virtually matched. So we have at least ostensibly about a 25% improvement in 2 survival with this historic comparison. And it really lends credence to the whole notion of adding C225 to chemoradiation. And in fact, the RTOG is mounting that trial, RTOG0522, is a phase three trial. It's open through the CTSU, through the Cancer Trial Support Unit. So, any cooperative group, any person in North America essentially can access this trial. And it's comparing full dose chemo radiation versus full dose chemo radiation with cetuximab. And this trial is accruing like gangbusters. It's targeted to accrue 720, and it's accrued at least 80 percent of the targeted enrollment. I think there's talk about actually expanding the accrual. It's interesting because the NCI thought the trial wouldn't accrue well. They thought that most investigators would shy away from cisplatin, you know, for the obvious reasons. It's a toxic drug. It doesn't play well with radiation, can certainly exacerbate mucositis, but the accrual has not been an issue.
0: I think it's always, you know, interesting to docs and patients when you have a new agent that you generally aren't going to be able to receive elsewhere, particularly if there's no, you know, life-threatening toxicities and it offers some promise in a sort of bad situation. We saw that in the adjuvant bevacizumab colon trial that just Mm -hmm. bang, 2,700 people in two years. You know, this kind of may seem like an obvious question, but clearly there's a lot of evidence that cetoximab is going to synergize with radiation therapy in terms of the impact on tumor cells. It sort of seems kind of intuitive that there might be the same thing that would happen with normal tissue. So in terms of what you saw, in terms of mucositis and I don't know, pneumonitis, et cetera. No,
1: we didn't see that. So do you think um, it's a
0: differential effect on tumor cells versus normal cells?
1: Absolutely.
0: Is there laboratory data to support that?
1: I'm not aware of the laboratory data. The certainly clinical data. The rash, I mean, everybody gets the acneiform rash. It's probably a little bit worse than the radiation field, particularly when you're giving it with platinum. But you don't see any of the other toxicities. Certainly don't see pneumonitis. The interstitial lung disease that was seen with the EGFR, TKIs, and lung cancer is not a feature of the antibody. You certainly don't see diarrhea, which is another feature of the small molecules.
0: What about the issue of mucositis and xerostomia in these patients and the use of radioprotectants like amifostine?
1: Amifostine has an approval in the at least adjuvant setting in combination with radiation in head and neck cancer can reduce not so much mucositis but long-term xerostomia, which is, at the end of the day, that's probably the biggest problem. And the mucositis goes away, but the dry mouth, the reduction in salivary production is a big, big problem.
0: So in terms of both head and neck as well as locally advanced non-small cell, are you using it in your practice also?
1: study? I usually use only in the setting of adjuvant. The problem with amifostine is it's not an entirely benign agent can cause skin rash when it's given subcutaneously. It can cause nausea and vomiting. It often requires platinum level anti nauseans. It can cause hypotension. So it violates one of the principles of supportive care. The supportive care agents shouldn't introduce their own toxicities. They should mitigate toxicity. So it's interesting. It's almost like religion. There are some head and neck oncologists who believe very strongly in it because even in the face of short-term toxicity, there appears to be long-term benefit in reducing xerostomia, but others just can't broach the short-term toxicities. I'm sort of on the fence, but I've worked with at least one radiation oncologist who believes very strongly in amifostine. What's the actual mechanism of action? It's kind of a weird agent. Well, it's a protectant. You know, remember, it's WR2721. It was developed by the government think back in the 30s and 40s, as a neuroprotective agent. So it seems to scavenge for toxins in normal tissue. It was originally, it was approved in the context of platinum-induced renal toxicity and thrombocytopenia. It seems to protect salivary glands and kidneys from toxicity. And so for that reason, it was developed as a potential agent to protect against mucositis against oral cutaneous toxicity
0: it also what protects the kidney from platinum toxicity yeah
1: but we don't use it that often i mean particularly in this country in advanced disease in stage four non-small cell we're mostly using carbo so that's not an issue i have seen some people use it with cis platinum in other settings but i think we've gotten wiser about how to handle Platinum toxicity just in terms of intravenous fluids. And, of course, we've got better antiemetics. So a lot of the kidney toxicity we saw when cisplatin first came out is not as much of an issue. But I have to temper that. We still see a fair amount. In fact, on our study, you know, we were using 75 per meter squared cisplatinum. We still saw some grade 1, 2, and 3 renal toxicity. You go back to Dave Edelstein's original paper at 100 per meter squared. They had 8% renal toxicity, mostly bumps in creatinine. We had 2%. So it's not a dead issue, but it's less of an issue. Is
0: it an important issue to be addressed? Are there other agents out there that are being looked at to deal with, particularly mucositis and xerostomia? Is it an important problem or not that big of a deal? It's a major
1: problem. I think that the big problem where we've really lagged behind, we're so caught up in therapeutic advances that we seem to ignore the fact that therapies have a price, that the toxicity sometimes can nullify any therapeutic benefit. And certainly the original amifostine work was focused on that. There have been attempts to look at rather banal approaches. For instance, in lung cancer, in the setting of combined modality, we looked at iced caraphate. And actually, at least in our own little boutique phase two trial, when I was at Fox Chase, we saw a reduction in esophagitis. The palifermin approach... Iced the, caraphate? Uh, iced caraphate, yeah. What is it exactly? Iced caraphate. Caraphate, you know, which we use for stomach ulcers we turn it into a slurry, we'd put it in the freezer, and then just before they got their radiation, they would sort of swallow it like a popsicle.
0: Is it basically
1: cryotherapy,
0: so to I speak? I think it
1: is. I think it's cryotherapy. So you could maybe do as well with ice chips.
0: I mean, I've heard of that ice chips being used in a variety of situations and yeah. try to deal with that. What about xerostomia? What fractions of
1: patients, once you get out two, three years, is this really a major issue? It's still a major issue. A lot of these patients can't taste their food. They can't make enough saliva to eat comfortably. The typical head and neck patients out a number of years is carrying a water bottle with them. Many of these patients, a fair number, and it depends on the study and how aggressive the combined modality treatment is, anywhere from 15 to 30 percent remain G tube dependent. So, you know, you could argue, well, they're alive, but is it truly a victory? It may be a pyrrhic victory if they have such a significant toxicity. I've questioned my patients on this. You know, given all the toxicity you endured and the long-term sequelae and complications, do you feel it's worth it? To a person, they almost always say it is, even though they're dealing with some of the long-term problems. But if we could reduce that, figure out a better agent or a better way of delivering our therapy, perhaps IMRT or maybe even protons will reduce the mucositis. And there is at least some correlation between mucositis and xerostomia. If we could reduce the long-term sequelae, then the quality of life of our head and neck patients would go up immeasurably.
0: What about conformal or IMRT? How much you know, does that offer realistically? Is it a major benefit in terms it's of It's
1: unclear. The big problem is we probably can't do a phase 3 trial comparing it. You know, the new technology is awful hard to compare to old technology or less new technology. So there's a gestalt out there, certainly in serial phase two efforts that the IMRT may reduce a lot of the toxicity. I think the jury's out. There is an adjuvant trial that completed accrual last year through the RTOG. We looked at patients with high risk for relapse, folks with multiple nodes involved or extracapsular extension. Or positive margins, and they all got radiation, they all got cetuximab, and they were randomized to either weekly cisplatin or weekly docetaxel based on preclinical data that showed quite a bit of synergy, of course, between platinum's taxanes and C225. You know, the big problem, as you imagine, was mucositis. One of the issues, a fair number of the patients on that trial got IMRT. So we actually have two different groups, folks who got more conventional radiation and those who got IMRT. And I can't really divulge the results yet, but there'll be some interesting data coming out comparing the incidence of mucositis, I think, in the two groups. Because ostensibly, they got the same treatment. They got the same chemo. They got the same doses of radiation. All of these patients got C225. And so for the first time, we'll have some sense of whether IMRT truly reduces the incidence of mucositis and long-term xerostomia.
0: What else happened at ASCA? What else was presented in head and neck that you think is important?
1: In the head and neck world, I think we had one very important paper. This was by Paganella. It was one of the oral papers. And as I mentioned earlier, there seem to be two camps in the head and neck world, those who believe strongly in induction and those who feel that concurrent chemo radiation is the standard approach, or at least the standard of comparison. So, there have been phase three trials initiated that are comparing standard full dose chemo with radiation to the same preceded by induction therapy. And one of those is an ongoing effort by Paganella from Italy. And they looked at the TPF regimen, which, of course, has been popularized by Marshall Posner and Vermorken and others. It was followed by full dose chemo radiation versus chemo radiation alone. At least the preliminary data are intriguing. The response rates were higher in the combined induction and concurrent approach. The median and one year survival rates had not yet been observed, or at least the median survival had not yet been observed in the induction approach. I think it was thirty three months for the concurrent approach alone. The one year survival rates were seventy eight percent versus eighty six percent. They didn't have p-values, and I don't think it's probably premature to report the long-term data, but if we can prove definitively that induction in the context of full-dose radiation truly improves long-term survival, then I think that will ultimately emerge as our standard approach, a combination of both induction and concurrent. The original trials, including Marshall's, compared TPF to PF and showed that TPF was our standard induction regimen, that folks did better. But it was done in the context of somewhat less aggressive chemo radiation or just in the context of radiation alone. So, one of the nagging issues is whether induction improves outcome in the context of full dose chemo radiation. The other trial that's ongoing is the Decide effort out of the University of Chicago. When I was at Fox Chase, we were participating in that and basically asking the same question Did TPF preceding full-dose radiation, This uses a Chicago regimen, which is every other week radiation with 5 few, and hydrea. And I believe docetaxel is added to that. Does induction improve outcome? And I believe the DECIDE efforts accrued in the range of about 170, 180 patients at this point out of 400 patients targeted for enrollment.
0: Right now, what do you consider You know, some of the evidence-based reasonable
1: options that at least you present in a non-protocol setting to patients? Outside of protocol, concurrent chemoradiation, in my opinion, is still the standard. There are uh, equal number of head and neck oncologists who feel very strongly that induction is the standard. When we look at the meta-analyses that Borges and Pinon put together, granted a lot of this is older data, but the best long-term survival, the best survival advantage has been seen with concurrent in the range of 6 to 8% absolute benefit. Induction only provided a 2% advantage. Now, granted, these are older studies. The more recent work of Marshall Posner and others has not been included. So will I break that rule? Sure. If a patient has a relatively small primary and fairly bulky nodal disease with a higher risk for a regional recurrence and because of the nodal involvement, distant recurrence, I would certainly consider induction in that patient.
0: Are there any situations where you would consider radiation therapy with cetuximab, either with chemo or without?
1: Outside of a study, I feel very uncomfortable giving all three together. It's still considered an experimental approach. In phase two studies, as we did with ECOG 3303, I think it's reasonable. I would certainly offer the RTOG effort, 0522, to a candidate patient if they decline that. And probably about 50% of those I've offered it to have declined it. I will generally give a platinum alone with radiation. The standard dose is still 100 per meter squared. If they're not fit enough, if they some other mitigating factor, be it age or comorbidity, that patient, I will often substitute cetuximab for the cisplatin, give that with radiation. And certainly that would be identical to the Bonner approach and really fits in with, quote, evidence-based medicine. I feel extraordinarily uncomfortable giving platinum C225 and radiation together, standardly outside of a protocol setting.
0: You just wrote a really great review article for cancer targeted therapy and head and neck cancer. It was interesting. I was thinking to myself, you know, five or 10 years ago, you wouldn't think about a paper with that title existing. <laughs> <laughs> now you're writing it. And I'm curious, you know, you go through all the different pieces, including cetoxamab, but a bunch of other stuff. I want to sort of talk to you a little bit in terms of an overview of what's going on in terms of targeted therapy. But just taking a step back, and as you began to prepare
1: for writing the paper, thinking it through, what are some of the broad general strokes that came through your mind? Well, cetuximab is the king of the mountain right now. Certainly, it's been approved in the setting of definitive radiation, thanks to the Bonner paper. It also has what I consider to be a stealth approval for platinum refractory metastatic recurrent patients. These are folks who are Really, onto second line treatment. Single agents yielded survival rates in the six month range, which sounds horrible, but best supportive care in that setting has a survival of maybe three months or three and a half months. And a reproducible response rate of about 10 to 12 percent, which also sounds awful, but empiric chemotherapy at that point probably works less well. There are four areas. Ethan Argiris actually presented a paper at this year's ASCO. It was abstract 6002 that looked at cetuximab in combination with induction therapy. Now, he deleted the 5-FU, but he continued docetaxel and platinum. And certainly it was feasible, as we would expect it to be. It was a single-arm pilot trial, so we don't have any comparative data. But I think certainly that's a trend that we'll probably see. It won't be TPF alone. It may be TP with cetuximab, we may be using cetuximab to substitute for what many of us consider to be a less effective, more toxic agent like 5FU. The 0522 trial, of course, will establish whether cetuximab adds to chemoradiation. We don't know that yet. We all think it will, but maybe it won't. And really, until we have the data from that trial, it remains an open question. Paul Harari has completed a phase two trial I alluded to earlier in the adjuvant setting where C225 was given with radiation and either weekly cisplatin or weekly dose docetaxel. And if those data look promising, you can foresee a trial comparing platinum and radiation to platinum radiation and C225. And finally, last year at ASCO, Vermorken presented the extreme trial which compared platinum and 5-FU, you could take your pick, carbo or cisplatin with standard 5-FU, plus or minus cetuximab, and again showed a survival advantage. It's really quite amazing. I'm not aware of any other disease where a single agent has demonstrated its efficacy so globally in just about every setting that we can encounter. Now, whether the other targeted agents measure up remains an open question. There was an interesting presentation by Wirth and colleagues from Dana-Farber, Looking at panitumumab, so another alternative EGFR antibody, again in the context of chemoradiation, and basically demonstrated it was feasible. But any of these new agents is going to ha- potentially have a very difficult hill to climb because the comparator will be cetuximab plus standard treatment. The folks at MD Anderson have been looking at erlotinib in advanced disease in combination with platinum and I believe docetaxel. And I believe as well that a phase 3 trial has been initiated based on their very promising median survival data. I think they had median survival data in the 11-month range. So, you know, here too, will the oral agents do as well as the antibody? Unclear. And lung cancer, and it may be dangerous to extrapolate from lung cancer, but the oral agents seem to work best when they're given alone or certainly not when they're given with chemo or radiation. On the other hand, the antibodies may work best when they're partnered with some other modality, be it radiation or chemo. And I think one of the best examples of that at ASCO is the FLEX trial. Cetuximab in combination with standard chemo and advanced non small cell. I knew you had to it, get into that. I mean, how can we
0: talk and you're not going to talk about the FLEX study?
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, but I think it has implications for head and neck. So, you know, here we go it's an EGFR inhibitor. So are allotinib and gefitinib. You go back to the Tribute and talent trials, to INTACT-1 and INTACT-2, flat-out negative trials when we added the small molecules to chemo, compared to chemo alone. The phase 3 trial grafting cetuximab onto what many of us consider to be an inferior or at least more toxic chemo regimen of an oral bean and cisplatin, yielded a statistically significant survival advantage that had never been demonstrated for the small molecules. The same principle may apply to head and neck.
0: So, of course, now that you brought it up, I've got to ask you, or have you been
1: writing for or considering cetuximab since ASCO? I've certainly been considering it, but until I can be sure that it's going to get paid sure. for, I've not been giving it. But in terms of the data, it was enough, because that, I would kind it of... It was not overwhelming. I'll grant you this. You know, it was statistically significant. I think some might question how clinically meaningful. Still, it did result in a survival advantage. There was an interesting disconnect, the progression-free survival, the PFS was not significantly better. And you would think that the two would track together, that PFS and overall survival would pretty much run in parallel. However, you drilled into the data that they presented, time to failure actually was a bit better. And if you exclude the Asian population that was enrolled in that study, you actually begin to see a separation and progression-free survival for the Caucasian populations? I think the answer is it's real. And when you look both at squamous and adeno, you continue to see a survival advantage. So now, at least in lung cancer, we have two antibodies that have demonstrated a survival advantage in advanced disease. We have bevacizumab, thanks to ECOG4599, and we have cetuximab, courtesy of the FLEX trial. Bevacizumab is not yet a major player in head and neck cancer, although there are fledgling trials from the University of Chicago that show it can be given with erlotinib and in some cases with chemoradiation combination. We don't tend to see the major bleeding that we saw in lung cancer, but these are still pilot efforts. It'll be a while before we can figure out whether Bevacizumab has a role in head and neck But the cetuximab story, let me just backtrack. Five years ago, I would have said cetuximab, the small molecules are identical. They target the same receptor. As time goes on, I am convinced more and more we are dealing with very different agents. So just to get real
0: practical before you get back to head and neck, you've got a patient with advanced squamous lung cancer right now. And let's assume that you can get the cetuximab paid for would you generally be thinking
1: about using it or not? I would certainly think about it. If I knew for a fact I could get it paid for and that I wouldn't go through hassles with the insurance industry, I would graft cetuximab onto a platinum-containing regimen. Which regimen to use with it, I think, is open to question. For the squamous patient, I'd certainly consider gemcitabine with uh, platinum for two reasons. Number one, last year at the World Lung Meeting in Seoul, Giorgio Scagliotti presented a phase three trial comparing pemetrexid to gemcitabine combination with cisplatin, showed therapeutic equivalence, non-inferiority with respect to survival. He looked at the non-squamous population The pemetrexid patients benefited you looked at the squamous patients, really the reverse was seen. The gemcitabine patients seemed to do better. It wasn't significant, but it was trending in that direction. And then we have randomized phase 2 data from Butts and colleagues from Canada that looked at gemcitabine and cisplatin with or without cetuximab. And granted, it's phase 2, but you see about a 2.5-month survival improvement for the combination of cetuximab with gem and cisplatinum. So I would have very little trouble extrapolating that data to a GEM-carbo-cetuximab regimen for the squamous patient.
0: So getting back to your paper in cancer on targeted therapy, Mm -hmm. obviously a major issue is predictors of response. And in terms of cetuximab, at least in colon cancer, we've seen some pretty exciting stuff in terms of KRAS. Where, if
1: anywhere, are we heading in terms of head and neck? All bets are off. KRAS is probably a minor issue in head and neck. We discussed this extensively at the recent RTOG meeting. Under 5% of head and neck patients have KRAS mutation. So I believe in colorectal it's on the order of 40 or right, 50%. Right. It may be a bigger issue in lung cancer, but even there, KRAS mutations are probably only about 20 or 25% of the patients. So that's the first question. This question I'm always asked. Will KRAS be routinely assayed in lung and head and neck? And the answer, I think, is probably no. At least in the context of the antibody, certainly in head and neck, lung, it may be an issue yet. It's a much bigger issue with the small molecules because we seem to see a reciprocal effect. If somebody is KRAS positive and they're receiving treatment with a small molecule, EGFR, TKI, they're unlikely to respond. So it's a very intriguing issue. We've not yet identified the molecular predictor. It's frustrating. You have to remember that Flex trial, in fact, was a targeted trial. You had to have at least some, EGFR expression to get onto the trial. Now, granted, about eighty to eighty-five percent of patients, but maybe we culled out the fifteen to twenty percent of patients who truly would not benefit. And again, turning to lung cancer for a moment. We finished a phase two, it was presented as a poster, and was presented by my former colleague, Posein Borgai. We looked at weekly taxol, monthly carbo, and weekly cetuximab, and we actually took all comers. We didn't base it on EGFR status. But then we went back and looked at EGFR just by IHC. And those who were IHC negative, they had a lousy survival. Their median survival is in the seven-month range. If they were EGFR positive, and again, we didn't drill down into whether they were 1+, 2+, plus, plus, or 3+. plus their median survival was at least double that. So EGFR negative may be the group we should avoid giving these agents to. Don't know yet. And wouldn't that be simple? I mean, it's a much easier test to get an IHC than to start looking at FISH or mutation status. And so far as cetuximab is concerned head and neck, you know, there are a number of ongoing trials or all sorts of molecular correlates that are being done. Certainly, EGFR by H C by intensity ratings, by FISH, by mutation is being assessed, but we do not yet have a consistent, predictable indicator for benefit. One of the interesting approaches is to look at some of the downstream events. You know, maybe AKT or some other factor will be important.
0: So the last thing I want to ask you about is, are there any questions that medical oncologists ask you about head and neck cancer that we haven't covered today?
1: Yeah, they ask, can we do anything besides cisplatin? (laughs) We all hate platinum. we recognize that it's the standard of comparison, but can we abandon it or can we dose attenuate it? I think the standard is still 100 per meter squared. One option is to substitute weekly therapy, and certainly we've done that in the adjuvant setting. And you know, at the end of the day, if you give 30 per meter squared weekly, you're getting pretty much equivalent dose in. Maybe you're using it in a more practical manner. Certainly a weekly approach might be more radiosensitizing than a Q3 week approach. The other thing that we've done, and we did this in the context of ECOG 3303, the phase two pilot trial and unresectable disease I mentioned earlier we included a stipulation to substitute carboplatin for cisplatin if we ran into toxicity. I think ultimately what we all would have loved, and it hasn't happened yet, is a comparative trial of platinum radiation versus cetuximab radiation. A number of us think strongly that the two may be equivalent. and Certainly cetuximab does not have, with the exception of the rash and maybe some exacerbation of mucositis, it really does not harbor the toxicities we typically see with cisplatin. I think the other question is, should we go beyond the eight weeks of radiation with cetuximab until we have phase three data? The standard is still cetuximab with radiation. And then the big issue in advanced disease a metastatic recurrent is what regimen should we use? And platinum five, fu is still the standard, but certainly the extreme data suggests that you can add cetuximab to that. They don't yet officially have an FDA approval for that. But we do have level one evidence-based data, phase three data, that shows a survival advantage. And here, too, I think a lot of us would love to get rid of 5-FU. It's inconvenient. It certainly exacerbates mucositis. Why not go with a much easier platinum taxane, platinum docetaxel regimen with cetuximab?
0: You said before you used the term stealth FDA indication. What does
1: that mean? Oh, <laughs> stealth. That it's not approved, but it's used? No, it is approved, but most people aren't aware of it. Everybody's aware of the Bonner data, which, as you know, is the phase three trial that compared radiation, cetuximab, to radiation alone. Right. But very few people are aware that cetuximab has a second indication in head and neck for platinum refractory patients as a single agent. When I give talks on head and neck, I typically poll the group the audience about what are the indications for cetuximab and head and neck. They all know the Bonner data. Unless they're a member of the head and neck cognoscente, they do not know the other indication. And there can't be too many people in that group. It's amazing. You can <laughs> fill an auditorium with the folks who are interested
0: in head and neck.